Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to another episode of Talking with Traders. And this time we welcome back another previous guest from the first season of Talking with Traders. And that is JP Ferster from Protea Capital Management. Uh, JP joined us on the first uh, series in July of 2020. So JP, it's been not almost two years since we spoke. It's been a long time. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. It's really good to have you back. Thanks, Garth. Yes, great to be back on. And yes, a lot has happened since July 2020. So fascinating to uh, to touch base again. Well, it absolutely has been a, a fascinating time. Um, you know, you you mentioned on our previous co- podcast that you see Mr. Market as this schizophrenic individual, constantly chopping and changing and moving around based on the changing facts and changing circumstances. And we've certainly seen plenty of schizophrenic behavior in the market over the last two years or so since we last spoke. I mean, when we spoke the last time, we were all in COVID lockdowns everywhere. And I know I was at home homeschooling kids, which is an experience I never want to have to go through ever again in my life. Um, tech stocks were all the rage at that stage. The, the new economy shares were all pumping, things like Zoom and uh, Peloton and all of these kind of companies that were benefiting from this working from home kind of economy. And at that stage, all the old economy stocks were completely out of favor. And now, as we sit here in uh, in March of 2022, all of that seems to have turned on its head. I mean, the tech stocks are now completely out of favor. There's been some dreadful performances in the tech space over the last year. And value shares, uh, the old economy stuff like oil and gas and some of your kind of industrial type companies are suddenly all coming back onto the radar. And that's where the outperformance is coming from at the moment. So with all of that in mind and this schizophrenic environment that we've had for the last two years, how have you done at uh, Protea Capital Management over that time in, in your funds? Mm, yes, so uh, you, you've, you've uh, teed it up quite nicely. And, and as you say, 180 degree change from the circumstances of July 2020. Uh, I remind you that we manage two different hedge fund portfolios, the one focused on South Africa and the one focused on global developed markets. And then we also have a fund that just combines the two. And when I look at our performance over the last two years, the, the SA fund has, has done decently, I would say, over the last one year, outperforming the all share of a rolling two-year basis, slightly underperforming the all share. So the local portfolio uh, has done quite 
decently. Also taking into account that the net equity exposure over this time was what we call a medium exposure. I, I think it was roughly 60 to 70%. Okay. So to, um, to do more than 20% over the last year and compound it, I think it's roughly 16% over two years uh, per annum. Um, for that equity exposure, I'm comfortable with, I'm happy with. On the global side, it's been a bit, bit of a different story. There, we were too slow, and I'll get to it in a bit more detail later, but basically we were too slow in this 180-degree turn in market. So our fund is, is roughly flat over the last two years. In dollar terms, slightly up, but in rand terms, slightly down by like 2% uh, because of the strengthening of the rand. We were above 17 rand to the dollar in July 2020, and uh, uh, now we're just about 15. So the, the, the rand dollar exchange rate has been quite a headwind for us. But then the whole point of us typically being long, these high quality shares uh, that we see as being above average quality companies and being short, these below average quality shares, which typically are, are quite often seen as value shares, has been the exact wrong positioning over the last few years. Yeah. And, and our positioning hasn't been stable, hasn't been static. And then again, I'll get to that in a bit more detail. But in general, we've been too slow to adjust. And that has led to, to underperformance of the last few years, where we are roughly flat on the global side versus global equity indices, which are up quite strongly over the last few years. So, uh, so a bit disappointing on the global side. Okay. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know you're not alone in that. A lot of the people that I speak to and some of the other guests, fund managers who I've interviewed on this podcast have encountered the same difficulty because it's a, it, it has been a massive and very rapid shift away from growth and into, into value. Uh, but looking a bit broader now, you know, we sit in a situation that I see as, as riddled with headwinds for equity risks, uh, equity markets and financial uh, risk assets in general. Um, COVID is a risk that seems to have rapidly moved into the rearview mirror because we've got now bigger issues to deal with, geopolitical issues. But besides that, you know, we're also dealing with uh, high inflation, very high inflation currently. And the question around whether it's going to be transitory or not, I think, is beginning to – the question is being questioned, actually, you know, given the, the rise in some of these commodity prices and soft commodity prices in particular. So one questions whether this inflation is going to be transitory or, in fact, if it's going to be rather sticky, which is looking more like the case. We've also got uh, tapering for the Federal Reserve, pulling back the stimulus, uh, rising interest rates coming and also potential for slowing growth looking out to the latter half of this year. Uh, and then, of course, as I mentioned, we've got this rising geopolitical risk with the, the war going on in Ukraine at the moment and Russia seeking to, to, to redraw the map of, of Europe um, and the risks that if, they, if this continues at some stage, they could potentially draw NATO in. So all of this doesn't paint a very, pic a very pretty picture for, for risk assets, generally speaking. And Given all of that, I mean, how do you how do you position a portfolio, I guess, with all of these risks in mind? Mm, yes, it's something I've been thinking a lot, uh, quite a lot about the last two years because we've generally, on the offshore side, and particularly, not not gotten it right. Mm. So, uh, so uh, I've done some deep introspection in terms of what are the lessons I can learn from our experience over the last two years, and. Uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm cautious that one mustn't take a lesson just out of the last two years and think that these necessarily 
a generally applicable lesson. Because just because something worked or didn't work in the last two years doesn't mean that it becomes a general rule according to changing one's process or, um, or, or, or changing one's um, approach to investing. So what I've, where I am now is basically I've, I've reminded myself that in markets one gets investors and traders. And investors take a long-term view and effectively look at long-term trends. And a trader looks at shorter-term news flow and wants to position in line with the shorter-term news flow. And um, I've come to realize that instead of seeing those two as being opposite ends of the spectrum, a hedge fund, and particularly because of the nature of shorting, should be a combination of an investor and a trading perspective at the same time. Right. Um, I use the analogy of, of saying it, it must be a little bit like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where, where the one must be rational, think only long-term, ignore the noise, while the other should be um, almost a little bit paranoid and, and pick up the news and read the news and make sure that you aren't positioned incorrectly for shorter-term impact. So all of the things that you mentioned, whether inflation is transitory, the war in Ukraine and, and other things, um, has got a certain short-term impact and potentially has got a different long-term impact. And that's where it's quite difficult to position a portfolio to be correct in both instances, because sometimes it's the opposite. Um, as an example, with the Ukraine uh, uh, conflict at the moment, we might see the Federal Reserve uh, um, still hike rates, but not as aggressively as people thought previously. And we have seen long-term government bond, bond yield actually come down again. Yeah. But if you look longer term, war is generally not good for government bonds and quite often can lead to significant losses in government bonds. So in the short term, you want to be positioned to be long government bonds, but in the longer term, you probably want to be positioned to be short government bonds because with more war comes more expenditure, more, more uh, uh, printing of, of uh, dollars or other currencies, and that's not good for bonds over the long term. So, so you've got this difficult mental anguish of saying, should I have my trading hat on or should I have my investing hat on? Should I position for what I think is going to happen in the short term? Or should I ignore the noise and position what being uh, what might occur on the long term? And I'm trying to do a bit of both because one of the problems and mistakes of the last two years is almost focusing too much on the long term, being too much of an investor, and not being enough of a trader, and not being uh, uh, um, uh, flexible enough in, in terms of changing the positioning of the fund. Where I do believe that certain sh certain shorter term trends could persist for quite a while, and therefore one shouldn't ignore them. So that in broad terms, without getting too uh, particular, which I can as well, if you want to, is some of the lessons that I've learned and some of the adjustment in our approach to say, don't completely ignore the noise, because sometimes the noise or the shorter term news flow can, can push prices quite far away from where you think they'll end up in the long term. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that just listening to you say that, you know, I, I uh, interviewed Adrian Saville two weeks ago on this podcast, and a large part of what we spoke about on that podcast was uh, viewing trading as an asset class in its own right, 
so if you think about your asset classes, you've got property, equities, bonds, alternative assets. I'm becoming more and more of the mindset that we should be treating trading as an asset class in its own right. And that you can, you know, perhaps you package that in its own product and, 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 yeah, an investor maybe decides I want to have five or ten percent of my assets in that particular asset class as a as, as a bit of a diversifier. Would you go along with that kind of thinking? I mean, it sounds like it's what you're saying, but you sort of packaged it all into one fund. Uh, yes, what I would say is trading definitely has got a particular risk return profile. Yeah. So in that sense, it should be looked at differently to other asset classes. Mm. But I wouldn't go as far as saying it could be its own asset class because I think what uh, this makes an asset class distinct is it has got a certain risk return profile, which means that you can then work out what is its correlation, for instance, relative to other asset classes. And the thing about trading is we know it's more risky. We know it has got the potential for better returns, but not all traders will give you more or less the same return profile for a trading activity. Uh, and sometimes uh, a, a trading portfolio would go up if markets go up, and sometimes they would go down if markets go up, depending yeah. on the specific trader. Yes. And that makes it difficult to, to systematically say it could be its own asset class. I don't know about that, but it definitely is its own source of risk and return. And in that sense, it should be looked at differently. Yeah. Okay. That's a very interesting perspective. I want to come back to uh, this issue around the growth shares that we that have been so pulverized over the last couple of months and well, over the last year, really. And as you said, this is where it's been difficult for you uh, and for many other fund managers who are globally, globally managing money uh, to see the switch. Because you know, a lot of investors, a lot of listeners might think at a high level. You know, think of tech. You think of the Nasdaq, um, but the Nasdaq does not. It, it completely masks what's actually happened beneath the surface. If one was to scratch underneath and look below the hood at some of the stocks within the tech space, there's been an absolute carnage in that area. And Kathy Wood's ARC Fund is, is probably the poster child for tech investment. And it's, and it's been thrashed, absolutely thrashed over the last year, down something like 60-odd or 65% from its high. Um. This, to me, kind of starts to almost feel a little bit like the NASDAQ bubble bursting in 2000. And, and that took a long, long, long time to base before it came right again. What are your thoughts around these growth assets, generally speaking, now? Uh, and would you think that this is almost like a repeat of that NASDAQ bubble, that it's going to take a long time to base and some of the stocks will survive and thrive, but many of them may never see, see the highs that they saw back in 2020 or, or have you got a differing view on that you're listening to talking with traders a podcast series brought to you by ig a world-leading online trading and investment provider if you haven't checked out the ig online trading platform please do so and visit ig.com also make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes So, so I think the one distinct difference between the 2000 bubble and maybe we can call it the, the 2021 bubble mm. is uh, that the bigger stocks in 2020 also fell very hard, while the biggest stocks 
2020 did not fall that hard. And as you said, therefore, the indices don't reflect the deep drawdowns, let's call it on an equal weighted basis, or just moving down the market cap ranking to smaller technology stocks. Mm. And that is the one, let's call it, unwritten chapter of this bubble. And it can have two possible endings. Either, as they say, that the generals get shot last, which means the big tech stocks are still to tumble, so that the indices tumble, or this has been not a bubble across the whole of the technology space. The biggest companies are actually such good companies that they are not in a bubble. They are exceedingly high quality compounding businesses and that you therefore only have a sector specific bubble in the tech sector, but excluding the biggest stock. That, that's probably the two outcomes that can still happen. Um, in, in terms of uh, the growth stock dichotomy of what happened the last two years. What we did is at the beginning, we, we, we were quite good in sort of looking at what was happening with early stage disruptive tech stocks, the likes you would find in the, in the ARC fund, and saying, this is ridiculous. This is a bubble forming. We're not going to participate. And all those shares more or less reached their high, reached their high in January 2021. Yeah. Then, roughly six months later, they had halved. And we looked at the results that came out of companies like uh, Etsy, uh, Roku, uh, Snowflake, some high-tech, high-growth companies. And the results were actually quite good. And we told ourselves, maybe these are great companies. Just very early in their life cycle, their share prices have halved. Our quant models were still telling us they're expensive, but we sort of overruled the quant models with human judgment and said, they've already halved. They look like great quality companies over the long term. We might get in early. Let's buy some. And then unfortunately, they halved again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's where we got hurt. We did well not to participate in the bubble going up. And we did well to miss the first halving of the bubble. But we got hurt with the second halving of the bubble. Mm. And since then, we've cut back even further with these high growth tech stocks. Um, but it's still, we, we still got some shrapnel wounds from the last six months having some exposure to them. Yeah. Okay. I guess that's, I'm smiling here. The, the, the old saying, what is a share that's down 75%? It's a, it's a share that halved and then halved again. And I guess exactly. that's exactly what you're saying. All right. I want to talk about something else that is been bringing it back to the South African market. Uh, and you, you've always said to me, you know, you like to learn lessons, and but hopefully the lessons are not too expensive when they do come around. Um, and I'll tee this up, first of all, by saying that you've got a lot of stuff very right in the past. And listeners will remember you from uh, years back when you were at still, that's still a 361 asset management and you were short of African Bank. And that share basically went to zero and you made 100% on the short. You also got Steinhoff very, very right. But I know that you are you know, transparent and honest enough to, to admit when you get things wrong. And when we spoke the last time, Sassel was one of your shorts on the portfolio, on your South African portfolio at that stage. And you were quite, you know, you, you sold it quite well. We thought that, the, the, well, a lot of us thought that there was a risk that the balance sheet was under pressure and that they might need to come to the market with a rights issue and re, recapitalize the balance sheet. The management at Sassel have managed to pull things right, and they've actually managed to avoid doing that rights issue. And the shares have 
performed phenomenally well out of the lows of uh, of the COVID low. And you were short that stock. So the question, I guess, is are you still short or did you cover it? And what are the lessons from that that exercise? Mm. So, so firstly, I think Sassel now is the, the biggest loss on an attribution basis in our Protea South Africa hedge fund since inception. So it definitely is a mistake. And the last time we spoke in July 2020, we were still short. I think Cecil was roughly 120 or 130 rand a share at that time. Yeah, it bounced a lot from the 20-odd rand lows that it saw in the, yes. in the really the, the doldrums of COVID, yeah. Correct. And I had a look, we, we, we track our trades. Uh, like I said, as you said, I like to learn lessons. And the only way you can learn lessons is if you really track your history. And what we did was we covered the short at around 165 rand a share late in 2020. Okay. And then we went long at roughly 220 rand a share early in 2021. And we are still long. And the share is now above 400 rand. Yeah. So we've effectively clawed back a big part of the loss from being short, even at roughly 40 rand a share, all the way up to 165. We've clawed that back uh, to a large extent by being long from 220 to now above 400. But we haven't clawed the full loss back. And it's still a significant loss. Okay. And it's, it's, it's sort of similar in the international, in the global fund, because internationally, we were also short some other oil producers, and it was more or less the same dynamic. They didn't drop by 95% and go up by 500%, not as bad as Sassel, because Sassel had the added uh, financial leverage as well because of what happened at, at Lake Charles. But it was a similar dynamic. So long story short, yes, it was probably our biggest mistake. We think we learned from the mistake because we were able to go long and still almost double our money from when we went long. So that mitigates the mistake and shows that we are at least learning from our mistakes. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. And, and, and that's it. I mean, I guess that's one of those things a mature trader or a mature investor admits when they're wrong. Don't get married to a view. And you're also not afraid to swing your position the other way when the facts change. What, what, what was it, though, with Sassel that actually made you do the, the complete reverse? I mean, it's one thing to cover a short and then just go neutral. But in this case, you actually decided to swing it and go long as well, which has clearly been the right call. But was there something particular to the fundamentals that made you swing the view completely 180 degrees? Yes. And it's actually quite simple. It's the Rand oil price. <laughs> so, right. yeah. so I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, being Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by ignoring the short-term uh, news flow or noise and focusing on the long term, but at the other end, really tracking short-term data points and the shorter-term news and thinking how that affects your portfolio. And in the case of Sassel, what we did was we saw that at the, at the end of the day, the driver of the Sassel share price is the oil price. Mm. And when we started tracking the oil price uh, effectively daily in shorter time periods, we could see by putting that in our models what was going to happen to the profitability of Sassol and the, 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 um, the lessening of the pressure on the balance sheet as the oil price recovered. And at certain points, we could see one could not justify a short in Sassol anymore because of the level of the oil price. Mm -hmm. And that allowed us then to go from short a few months later to going long. And it reiterated this point of saying that you can't ignore shorter term news flow and shorter term data points. 
And another point of learning from that means is we could, in the last few months, buy Tungela. We bought that uh, in the first month after it unbundled from Anglo-American mm. because we tracked the gold price and we saw it looks attractive. Uh, it means that because we were tracking the oil price, we went long MTN uh, near the lows. We started selling a bit too soon, but we were able to identify that because we were tracking the oil price on a short-term basis. And we bought Kumba based on the price movements of the iron ore price, and we bought some platinum companies that for many years I never had exposure to platinum companies. And we are now long a number of platinum companies and have been for a few months based on tracking the PGM prices more detail. So that's part of the learnings of looking at the short-term data points and saying, I'm still primarily an investor, but that doesn't mean I can't track data points and position my portfolio in the short term, especially when underlying commodity prices quite sharp. Mm, okay. All right. Super. And just from a we're now talking more to your uh your offshore portfolios, can you give us a little bit of a high level view of how those are more or less positioned at the moment, looking out over say the next year to two years? Hmm. So still primarily being long what we call high quality companies and then what has been tricky being short low quality companies. And to, to color that in a bit more, most of our long exposure is in the U.S. tech sector, but we also have significant exposure outside of the U.S. And what we've seen over the last year and how we've repositioned that fund is, like I mentioned, we started buying some high-growth tech shares that we thought was maybe a little bit expensive, but we're taking a long-term view. And we pulled back on that in the last two, three months as those shares got under further pressure. We've maintained our exposure to long-term compounders, both in the tech sector and otherwise. For instance, uh, um, uh, uh, the big technology companies, uh, Facebook, even though it was down a third in the month of February on the back of ba uh, bad results, that's still a significant long position. And we've got other long positions, for instance, uh, in, in U.S. compounding companies like uh, AutoZone and O'Reilly Carpark. And uh, in the healthcare sector, United Health, um, and a few others in the healthcare sector. So those long-term long-term compounding businesses, maybe excluding Facebook, have continued to do well for us, and we continue to help them. Okay. Um, the, the one thing we saw was some of these high-quality companies got too expensive, so we cut back a bit, um, and that sort of cushioned the blow of the last few months. On the oh. short side, we had been short heavy industry, oil and gas, companies that we don't see as having long-term pricing power. And as that hurt us over the last two years, we progressively covered those shorts. So what that means is our net exposure is actually quite high at the moment because we've been struggling to find shorts. And the area of the market we wanted to short was loss-making technology companies. And the reason we hadn't short them is because of the whole uh, a meme stock phenomenon, Robinhood phenomenon of retail investors bidding up these company share prices to ridiculous levels. Yeah. And we didn't want to get caught in a short squeeze. Mm. And it's only now that we feel comfortable that that whole cycle is, we think, behind us. Uh, and now we are more comfortable shorting some of these uh, meme stocks. Unfortunately, they are also down 75%. But we still think that a lot of them are worthwhile shorting. Uh, for instance, a company like uh, Lordstown Motors, 
and there's a few others in the in the whether the EV space or the autonomous vehicle space. We think there's a lot of hot air in that sector, and we have more recently uh, shorted that share. So at the moment we're looking for shorts, but we're positioned still uh, long, high quality compounders, especially tech sector, and on the short side we're looking for more shorts, including in loss making companies. Okay. All right. Fantastic. I know when we spoke previously, you mentioned that for your offshore portfolio, you do uh, try to hedge the RAND from time to time because your clients, your investors are RAND-based investors predominantly, I I presume. So they'll be looking at their performance in RAND. Um, What that does tend to mean is that when the RAND weakens significantly, you show a very good return in RANDs. But when the RAND strengthens, then obviously it, it, it erodes the performance that you show to your clients in RANDs. And you said at the time that what you tend to do sometimes is if the RAND blows out and goes sharply weaker, then you almost lock in that uh, RAND weakness by essentially going long of RAND futures or land, RAND options in order to, to lock in that. Now, that would have worked very well. I know, I know it did work for, for you very well in the early part of 2020 when the RAND blew out uh, following the breakout of COVID and you managed to hedge some of your, uh, your, your exposure, effectively locking in that weaker RAND for your clients and, and, and maintaining that higher level of RAND performance. But we sit in a situation now where the RAND is pretty strong. Uh, and and the reasons for that, I think we know it's high real, uh, high real interest rates in South Africa relative to the rest of the world. The commodities boom. We've just seen in the budget a big um, sort of surplus because of the commodities boom. And now we also do seem to be capturing a little bit of movement away from other emerging markets like Russia, which is obviously uninvestable now. Um, so we're seeing a bit of flow into the market because of that. But all of these factors, to my mind, seem like they're short-term. They're not structural long-term factors that are going to continue to support the RAND forever. So my question to you is that in times like this where the RAND is relatively strong, um, but there's a risk of it weakening at some point, do you ever go the other way and actually short the RAND in order to effectively get an even bigger exposure to a weakening RAND when it does weaken and therefore impress your investors with with a weaker RAND? Or do you just look at it, look at it, and say no? You know, by virtue of the fact that the portfolio is offshore, you naturally short the rand anyway. There's no reason to therefore go and try and get clever and and further enhance the rand performance when it weakens. Hmm. So more the latter. So we don't actively short the rand because, as you say, the fund is almost naturally short the rand. But we can move cash balances between South Africa and offshore. And in addition to that, we can hedge cash balances. So where we are now is almost all the cash in our South African domiciled project global fund is in dollars. And we have not hedged any of those dollars back to RAND. Yeah. So what that means is from year on, a strengthening of the RAND would be bad for us, but a weakening of the RAND would be very good for us. So that's how we positioned at the moment. How we got here is also interesting. In in June 2020, the last time we spoke, we had still significant hedging to protect against the strengthening of the RAND. And progressively, in the six months after that, as some of these hedges expired, we did not uh, renew them. Uh, at the same time, we had some RAND cash balances that we waited before uh, moving them to dollars. So it's worked quite well, but we reached our current positioning already when the RAND was roughly 16 to the dollar a few months ago. 
Mm. So everything from 16, and it went all the way to slightly below 15 in February, to now where we are in March, more mid-15, has hurt us. And, uh, you know, a, a rand over, over 16 rand is roughly 6 to 7 percent. It's been a 6 to 7 percent headwind as well over the last few months because we effectively have got no headwind. Yeah. Um, but when we look longer term, uh, we do think the rand is at quite strong levels, as you said as well. Um, but we wouldn't go as far as shorting the rand because we think that's a little bit too extreme, seeing that the fund is already short rand. Yeah. And to add one more point, we, we launched a new fund mid-January. That is a mirror of our progress of Africa retail hedge fund. It just has higher leverage, but it's domiciled in Malta and it's denominated in US dollars. So we effectively don't need to worry about the Rand dollar exchange rate and the impact on uh, our performance as published for this new Protea International hedge fund domiciled in Malta. Um, and it's been early days, but it, it uh, it allows us to not spend too much time on the big question of the Randall exchange rate for that. Okay. All right. Super. Um, and JP, one of the softer issues, last time we spoke, you told me you were an avid traveler and you love to go to different places, not go back to the same places that you've been before. Um, and you had aspirations when things opened up and you can hop on an airplane again, uh, you wanted to visit places like South Korea, Patagonia. You said the Baltic countries. Now, I'm, I'm hoping that you've already done that and because I guess that would be off the bucket list for now. But have you made any or done any interesting travels since we last spoke and any travel plans now looking out to the next, to the rest of this year? So unfortunately, we haven't been able to travel internationally the last two, two to three years. Um, and uh, yeah, well, two years. And we, we actually had a trip planned to Mauritius over December last year. And then because of Omicron and further lockdowns, uh, the, the uh, Mauritius lockdown, they did not allow South Africans. So we needed to cancel that trip, unfortunately. But we did try, take three local trips over the last two years. Um, one to the Western Cape uh, and the Cedarburg region, the West Coast and Cedarburg region. One to the northernmost part of KwaZulu-Natal. And, uh, and one in um, the Southern Cape, the, the Garden Route area. And it was wonderful to really travel in, in, inside South Africa and see a bit more of our own country uh, while we couldn't travel internationally. Mm. Um, so that was great. And it really um, renewed my, um, my love for South Africa. Um, but we do look forward to traveling internationally again in the next year or two. Yes, probably not the Baltic countries, um, <laughs> but we'll go uh, to some other countries that are maybe a bit further away from Russia and the Ukraine. Yeah, <laughs> best to stay away from that area for the time being. But yeah, it's interesting what you say about traveling in South Africa. And I know that during that time when foreigners couldn't travel into South Africa, a lot of the, the lodges and the high-level uh, high tourist attractions actually reduced prices just to keep the lights on. And I know many friends of mine who actually took advantage of that and traveled around to some really special places in South Africa and got to see some of the best of the country. So um, it's, it's good to hear that you managed to also get a bit of local sightseeing in as well. Um, JP, it's been great chatting to you. One last question, which is uh, possibly relevant for listeners, is how do they invest in your funds? You said to me that you've got a billion, what, over a billion rand under management now, um, and you've got a great pedigree, great name in the market. So if there are listeners listening to this podcast who, who would like to invest with you, how can they go about that? 
Mm, quite easy. They can go to our website, protrcapitalmanagement.com, and all the information uh, is there. Um, and they can send us an email, info at protrcapitalmanagement.com, and uh, and through that they can they can get in touch and invest in our funds. Um, so uh, so yeah, we've got a number of investors that have been with us for many years. And like I said, even though the global fund has gone through a tough time the last year or two. Uh, we do think that over the long term, the funds are still well positioned and looking forward to hopefully continuing what we call the long term wealth creation journey with our investors and compound at an above average rate. Um, so, uh, so yeah, if there are any listeners who want to join us on this journey, please do. Okay, fantastic. JP, thanks very much. It's been fantastic speaking to you, as always. I appreciate your time and I look forward to catching up maybe again, sort of similar time next year with you. Sounds good. And then hopefully I can tell you how nicely the Global Fund has recovered. Yes. And hopefully you can tell us about some travels. Super. All right. Thanks. And listeners, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to leave a review on your podcast app of choice. We really do value your feedback. Uh, We'll be back again next week with another episode of Talking with Traders. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.